host of a pen and a napkin podcast. We are here tonight with episode six, and we are excited to put together another weekly coaching clinic that you can have in your pocket. We, I am really excited for tonight's guest. Uh, this is another one of those situations where uh, this is a person that we've had uh, hundreds of phone calls that we are now just recording for everybody else to listen to. Uh, but we're going to keep our guest a secret here for just a minute. Uh, first, before we get going, we want to recognize our sponsor for this episode. COSAC Chiropractic is always located at 14450 Eagle Run Drive here in Omaha. Coaches, if you have an athlete who is struggling with balance, neck, or spinal issues, have them go see COSAC Chiropractic. You can check out their practice at COSAC Chiro, that's K-O-S-A-K-C-H-I-R-O.com. Or give them a call at 402-964-0300. And be sure to tell them that a pen and a napkin sent you. We are also on Twitter, so give us a follow on Twitter. A pen and a napkin, search that on Twitter. We try to have daily tidbits on coaching on a pen and a napkin every day, so be sure to follow us there. We are on SoundCloud. We are on iTunes. Uh, and especially on iTunes, you can, you can uh, subscribe on either one of those services, uh, download it, uh, rate it five stars, give us a review uh, so that we can get the word out, so we can gain momentum and ratings, so we can help and reach as many coaches as we possibly can. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any suggestions, if you have any questions that you want us to address here on A Pen and a Napkin, be sure to email us at the podcast, a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us. My guest here tonight, it's an absolute pleasure to have this gentleman on here, Tom Taverdi from Seward High School. Coach Taverdi, how are you this evening? Doing very well, just relaxing at home, getting geared up for another week, going back to teaching. Going back to educating America's youth at the county seat of Seward County in Nebraska? You got it. It's a full-time job. A full-time <laughs> gig. Well, you've had two full-time gigs for 29 of the last 30 years. Had a little uh, one-year sabbatical in there. Uh, just a little bit about Coach Taverdi. Uh, like I said, 29 years, 464 wins, 174 losses, 15 state, tournament, state tournament appearances, uh, one runner-up in 97, 1997, and then, of course, uh, four consecutive state championships, 2009, 2010, 2011, and 2012. And it's okay, I'm still not bitter about 09 or 10. That very easily could have been at 156th and West Center in Omaha, but that's okay, Coach Taverdi. I'm, I'm going to find a way to let that go at some point here. It takes longer than you think. <laughs> I'm sure you know. I, I, I'm still working on it here. I'm still talking to my to my folks. So, um, so Tom, for for people that that don't know you, uh, just give us a little bit of background on yourself. Here, we like to we like to start out with that on the podcast. Uh, where you grew up, uh, just kind of your background, uh, how you got into coaching, uh, you know, so forth and so on. Yep, I went to Surprise Elementary through sixth grade, and then my dad dropped a bomb on me that he's going to have me ride a school bus 21 miles one way and go to David City St. Mary's, and then on to Aquinas. And from Aquinas, went to um, wanted to play college basketball, and 
went to Kearney State and played there and met some really great people. One of them was Tom Crop, who was the one I, I kind of give credit to. I always go back to his incredible work ethic that he had and how he would, uh, the workouts he would do and so forth that really laid the foundation for my coaching career about how I wanted to have a team that would be a collection of people like that that would just outwork people and I really went laid the foundation and that led me into my first coaching job at Rising City, Nebraska. I was there two years and then went to COZAD for one year and from there to Gothenburg for six years and then the first time my wife and I had an opportunity to both teach and coach in the same school was in Fremont where there were three years and after three years, we thought that was it. We're set there. And then the opening came at Seward, which was kind of a perfect location, perfect situation for that time in our life with our family and the ages we had our kids at and in school and what we wanted for them. And so made the move to Seward and been really in Seward now. Longest stint, been here for since about 2001, I guess it's been. And um, so that's kind of the snapshot of the background of my track record okay um i thought it was interesting and i didn't realize this till you you know you sent me the stuff to get ready for the pod uh but you had never been an assistant coach you literally graduated from college and you became a head coach right away um how do you think that has shaped your career well right out of the gate so i didn't have a mentor to as far as a coach to really serve under and learn from and compare things in my mind and what I want to do. And I went into the first job rising city, just kind of thinking I knew everything and, um, found out very quickly that I didn't. And, uh, being a competitor, I didn't want to continue to lose. So that really set in motion, just the idea that I've got to really, really study and work at this and, and <clears throat> develop a passion for studying and, and preparing and, and knowing the game and working that hard at coaching as you do as a player playing on the court. Mm-hmm. And so that really, really shaped my, cause it was a struggle. I mean, my first two years won one game each year. And I always go back to when I say, had I not gone through that and been humbled like I was, I don't think I would have had the foundation to, to have the success that I would be fortunate enough to have later on it, it it was a incredibly humbling experience that laid a foundation to appreciate everything from that point on that that went your way that was good because couldn't have been a worse situation to start out in terms of talent and program and i don't think that was by accident i think i was put in that place for a reason and uh, i always go back to that those first two years of rising city was a foundation that I needed for me to be successful later on. Do you, is that something that's still that, that, that feeling of that failure? Does that still drive you? I don't know if it's so much a feeling of failure or, um, I think a lot of us, most of us coaches would probably agree and say that, that, um, most a lot of the pressure that we face is self-imposed mm-hmm. so i guess it is kind of what you're saying in the sense that you you put a lot more pressure on yourself 
than others on the outside are putting on you in terms of winning and so forth. Because if you step outside and watch other teams or other sports, you you look at them from the outside looking in and, and think, well, that must not, that can't be that that difficult or that trying or that tough. And you don't realize till you're in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the self-imposed pressure, I think, for a lot of coaches is probably more of the pressure than anything else. Even though, you know, and I, I guess that yeah. goes hand in hand with fear of failure. Yeah. But the self-imposed pressure that you want to continue to be successful and you want to live up to your own expectations and yeah. um, that that could be the most difficult, I think. How do you how do you uh, how do you manage that? You know, I mean, everybody everybody has their ways, and I know that you know I had my ways. But how how do you handle that self-imposed? pressure and that you know that's something that's come up on on other podcasts you know with coaches talking about that and and i know i felt that as well uh and and everybody deals with it in a different way you know how do you deal with it you know i can tell you it's um i would say right away as soon as you asked that question the first thing that came to my mind for me is prayer Mm -hmm. it's something that i have uh you know on my prayer card that i have a number of things that i want to be consistent praying about and that's one of them that my prayer is that God will give me a heart that will want to honor him more than wanting to win and then trust him with the results. And I honestly believe that is really, particularly in the last five to eight years, I've really sensed that prayer coming to fruition to where you start to really think more about investing, investing and doing it in a way that pleases God. And then if you do that, the results will take care of themselves. And I, I just really feel like that has been a, a calming influence that I've tapped into that I would be scared to ever walk away from because that's just made coaching the last five to eight years so much more enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. And that's been, a, but that's been a lot of years of prayer that took a while for, for there's a lot of things that I think God had to work on on me. Yeah. A lot of things to where, he, over a course of time, he's been faithful, and I'm, I'm really seeing that in my coaching now, um, where he's given me more of a call. That I don't know how else you get it. I mean, you can try. I mean, in your own strength, trying and yeah. be, be not as stressed out as much pressure. But um, you know, that's that's difficult to do. So I really think it comes down to that and a heart that is truly in it for the kids over you wanting to win for your own notoriety. And I, I think early in my career. There's no question. I was. I look back and I think it was too much about me and not nearly enough about the kids. Do you? Uh, so you go from Rising City, and then you go to to Cozad, um, and then you end up in Gothenburg, and you have a great run in Gothenburg, and you make it to uh, three straight state tournaments, uh, but you kind of had the reversal that we had where you had, you know, the, probably the second best team in the state, but you kept running into the best team in the state in SCOTUS, Columbus SCOTUS while you were in Gothenburg. And, you know, that was when you had your runner up in 97. And, you know, that's when I was working with power and, and Saley and we would, you know, watch your teams play at the state tournament. And I know that was awful tough. You know, it had to be tough to feel like you were so close but at the same time, you kind of felt like you were so far away, I'm sure, um, to, to a degree, you know. Uh, what did you 
what did you learn from, you know, making that run, but not quite getting over that, that hump and, and just having kind of that, that, that same obstacle three years in a row? How did you use that to, to help you in the long run? I think it's just really persistence and perseverance and, you know, grit and not giving up, you know, all those things in life that are important that you go through kind of in a microcosm went through it in my early part of my coaching and just four out of six years. So I was at Gothenburg six years. So four out of six years, we went to state and it was kind of a three man race. Bob Snitzer was at Battle Creek and he was in his heydays. Mm-hmm. Um, you had uh, John Peterson at SCOTUS mm-hmm. and then us and all three of us, most of those years, all three of us were in the all-class top 10 in the World Herald. Yeah. And we're all in C1. And I'm thinking, can this get any harder? I said, I'll never win a state championship. <laughs> you know. And the big thing is persistence. And I remember talking to John Peterson right before our state championship game with them. And he said, hey, he goes, whatever happens tonight, he goes, um, number one, you guys will be back because you're young. I remember we had a sophomore crew at that time. And he said, the other thing is, he goes, really, the big thing is just to be in the hunt. Just be, if you could just continue to be consistent and be in the hunt, you're, you know, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened later on in my career. But I tell you what, it was, that was a juggernaut. I look back at that and I remember, I remember playing Battle Creek in a team camp in Kearney. And I remember walking out after we had beat them. It was a team camp. It was actually a Miss Basketball tournament that Doug Koster puts on. So we beat them in a close game and walked out afterwards. And I remember he was walking out ahead of us. And I could overhear him talking about the game and the things they learned from that game to help them win when it really matters in the season next year. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of started me with my it's amazing if you're really looking for it it's amazing how many things you can pick up from a team camp game a summer league game watching some other teams that you're unrelated to playing it can be the most insignificant game or situation or team camp that sometimes you can come up with the most significant little nuggets of information or ideas that can change a whole team and a whole program in a season. And so I've really been one to pick it, it you know, I, to picking out details from spots you'd never think you pick details out yeah. from. The, you know, that. So that's kind of the things that I learned from that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think there's, you know, through adversity and, and stuff, you know, there's there's learning opportunities and everything that you have there. Uh, what's, what's to say, you know, you know, win stands for what's important now and, you know, loss, learning opportunity, stay strong. I, I think that's the acronyms for those. And I and I think you're losing, and, and there were two totally different types of losing. The, the losing you had your first two years that you talked about, and then the losing that you had in Gothenburg to, to SCOTUS, but they were still opportunities to take from something, you know. And, and if you use it the right way, you can you can use it to benefit yourself. Yeah, and you think about like when we were one of the years that we, one of the two years we didn't make it, state of Gothenburg, we were actually ranked number one going into a district final. We played Hershey, who had a great time, uh, a great team, and I remember we lost 
and we had a 13-point lead in the fourth quarter, missed nine straight free throws, missed it, lost at the buzzer. It was a year before wild card came in and different things like that. And we were the number one team going in, and next thing you know, we're not even going to state. I remember our, we had a seat, pretty senior-heavy team, and I remember on the way home, I, it took me about two weeks to get over that. I just think, I don't want to coach anymore. I told my wife, I don't want to coach because it's not worth. <laughs> it's just not worth putting up with the disappointments that you're going to get along the way. Yeah. And I just about got out of it and and didn't think we'd have much the next year. We lost. We just had a couple freshmen that played for us. We ended up going, having two straight undefeated regular seasons and, and made some really good runs again. I'm thinking I almost walked away from that because of disappointment. And so one thing that taught me was, again, that perseverance. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised. You just never know You just if you just focus on making the most out of what you have. You'll never – that you just never know what that most might end up being. Yeah. And but boy, isn't it? It's something though that in coaching for players and for coaches, you get in the course of a season a microcosm of life. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. to where all the different things you need to be able to to get through life, you're going to get that practice in that. So if you could just um, realize that it isn't life or death, but it can train you for the life or death situations, but. I sure thought I was going through death a few times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think if you've done it for any length of time, you're going to feel like that, you know. And and it's it's. Uh, I think once you get to the point where losing doesn't bother you or winning doesn't get exciting for you, then I think that's that's the scary time, don't you think? Yeah, I would agree. Then it sounds like the passion when you when you're at that point. Then you end up having poor practices, poor teams, and those are the, you know, the kind of coaches that probably it's it's time to get out because you've lost that passion, and, and it's really it's cheating the kids in too mm-hmm. when you are not bringing that same devotion that you had when you were passionate about it. Mm-hmm. So you 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 leave Gothenburg and you go to Fremont, which is Class A school. And it's kind of a logical jump at that point of your career. Um, you've got a few notches in your belt, and and you've come off to this very successful run at uh, at Gothenburg, and you go to a Class A school, um, and you're there for three years, and then you made the decision, which is kind of, you know, goes against the grain of what a lot of people would think to do. Uh, but you decided to step down a class and and go to to Seward. Uh, but what was what was attractive about that move about that decision? I'll honestly say that decision was almost a hundred percent driven by our family and what we wanted for our kids in terms of school to go to and community to grow up in. And that's nothing. Mm-hmm derogatory at all about Fremont. It's no. more about my wife had an experience. She went to Gothenburg, a C1B type school. I went to an Aquinas, had family in this area. My mom and dad lived closer, although it wasn't all that far away in Fremont either. Yeah. But that was a that was a big thing. We had a, a, a daughter, Hannah at that time was a coming off of kindergarten and had a fourth grade boy. And so we thought about, okay, for the next 12, you know, 10 years or whatever it was, where is best for our kids to go to school and community and all that. And we just thought based on our past experience, we couldn't pass it up. And, and we just thought Seward was kind of an ideal community because I know that 
when the job came open, um, neither one of us were even thinking about leaving. When it came open, it was I just remember telling my wife in church one morning, you know, there's a job opening in Seward for both of us, you know, both and that was probably that was the reason for the move. It was mm-hmm. thinking this is what we think would be a better situation for our kids for yeah. school and community. Mm-hmm. So you end up in Seward and you know, you start building a, a solid program, make a couple of state tournament appearances, and then everything comes together. You know, you know, you you just have this influx of talent with great coaching and and you go on the was is it's the second longest winning streak in the history of Nebraska girls basketball. Yeah, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the longest ever in A or B. I know uh-huh. that. And then I think West or West Point Central Catholic had a longer one. Yeah, I, I think, think they were at our, 111. Yes. And so we were, I, I'm pretty sure ours was second because I think Sandy Creek was next then. Okay, yep. So, you know, 104 in a row, um, three or four consecutive state championships, uh, you know, and, and not only within that, and, and this is something that you and I talked about, not only did you go on this great streak, but your daughter's playing for you at the same time. And you have this wonderful experience with Hannah, and, and you just kind of have this, this, this shared experience. You know, kind of describe um, what it was like going through all of that for those, for those four or five years of, of just being... Uh, you know, you, you guys were the not only the top pro- program in class B, you were the best program in the state for that, you know, half a decade. You know, you were the Golden State Warriors, if you will, of that time period. You know, what was what was that experience like as a head coach? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is I wish I could do it all over again and not just to relive, you know, the winning whatever, but I wish I could redo it all over again in terms of enjoying my daughter coming through in a better way because you get so caught up coaching, mm-hmm. you know, I think, and you, when you're coaching, you're watching all of your players out there. If you're a parent, you can sit in the stands and you can focus on your kid. <laughs> no, you know? there's, there's never been a parent that's just only focused on their kid while they're playing, Tom. <laughs> Has that ever happened? You know? And that's the crazy thing is I, I often look back and say, I wish I would have just taken time to, enjoy it more along the way in terms of father daughter mm-hmm. um but i'm not sure exactly how you do that when you know you're you've got to coach all the kids uh, how, how you can sit back and just enjoy it more and her and i have talked about that a lot you know and it's also tough because you, you're going to have a certain amount of people especially if you're having success like that that are not going to want you to continue to have success. I mean, just look at, you just watch games on TV now. People usually root against the teams that are, you want them to get beat. I mean, I was watching Georgia and South Carolina the other day. I could care less about either one of those, but I really want South Carolina win to upset that Georgia team that keeps winning. Yeah. Well, so you're dealing with people, you know, on the outside that maybe um, don't want you to continue to succeed like that and and not to really hurt, ever hurt anything, but it's, it's tough because you got that expectation and I always found the hardest part was, you know, I don't know how other coaches do it to coach their kids, but to not have that dilemma of 
wanting to watch your kid, but you got a coach and not showing mm-hmm. favoritism is is a, is a juggling act. It's tough. It, yeah. it was tough, but there's certainly there's a lot of enjoyment with it. But to me, I would like to I could do it all over again and say, okay, how could I better go about enjoying it along the way a little more, um, knowing it's your daughter and so once in a lifetime you're going to go through this together. And I kind of saw that because once she went on to college and I could just watch as a parent, yeah. I was like, that was where the, I really sensed enjoyment. And it was like, this is this is awesome. And kind of influenced me too with my own son in high school. I really liked not coaching him and being able to just watch him because you could just watch as a parent and, and enjoy it more. Otherwise, it just goes by so fast. Even a 104-game win streak, that's uh, – the thing that really struck me is you just don't think about it when you're going through it. Yeah. You're just next game up. Yeah. I remember when we lost, it was to Pius and the old Maddie Simon team. We lost to them on a shot at the buzzer. My daughter, I think she missed a shot at the buzzer. I think they would have sent it to overtime. Mm-hmm. And – and I remember going through the handshake line, looking at my assistant Greg Miller. I remember just thinking, "We haven't done this for a while." <laughs> it's like he's like, "What do we say?" It, it, not like, "What do we say?" It was like, "This is a awkward feeling," and we had to turn around less than twenty four hours later after that and play Grandon Northwest, who would eventually be the state champion that year, um, and came back. I think it was sixteen hours later, and they were fresh. We weren't. I'm like, we're gonna. This is gonna be a mess. We beat them. I think. I often say that might have been our best game, most her, most proud, one of the most proud games I've ever had. Was that game that we won the day after the streak being broken? But um, and so you just think back, and it was bittersweet coaching your daughter in terms. Of, I love coaching her, but I oftentimes think back. Could I have done it differently and enjoyed it more? Do you think, though, in some ways, um, would you have, you know, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, do you run off that number in a row if you change some of those things, though, as well? You know, it's it's that that yin and yang to it that you're, you kind of feel like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't as well, you know. Yeah. And, you do, you're right, you've got to coach the same way, which is, in, in, in so doing, you automatically can't then really watch your kid, if you know what I'm saying. You really yeah. can't. So that's just part of it is there's a good and a bad of coaching your kid. The good is that you get, you know, you get experience at um, coaching them and being going through it with them, but you also then lose some of that ability to be a parent to them. And But you're right. If I just felt like that um, uh, there really isn't any other way to do it as, as a parent like that. There just isn't. There, mm-hmm. You just have to coach the team, as, and you're human, so it's not like you could just erase that. Um, yeah. You have to coach that, and if in so doing, you're going to lose. You can't have the same dynamic you would if you are just a parent watching them as a coach. So I think for everybody, they have to look at their their situation. For some people, it works great. For some, it doesn't. You know, yeah. Some, it's like, there's no way I could coach my kid. Um, I was very blessed because I, um, you know, Hannah made it pretty easy on me because she was just such an incredibly hard worker. I mean, she, uh, yeah, that, oh yeah, that was the thing that's like you never could question her work ethic or attitude because that's oftentimes when um, coaches get in trouble coaching their kids or it gets frustrating as if their kid has some attitude mm-hmm. or doesn't work hard or has that to where that can become you know make make it real difficult. But she made that part. Real easy. Well, 
I mean, there was no doubt that, you know, from day one, when, when she got to high school, she was one of your seven or eight best players. And, but she never acted like she was a, one of your seven or eight best players, nor did she ever act like she was the coach's daughter. You would never know the difference if her name would have been Hannah Smith instead of Hannah Taverti, she still would have been a coach's dream. And you could just see that by watching your team play, you know, and, and I think that says a lot about the, the parents that you and Shelly are and, and the type of upbringing that she's had and, and, you know, everything that she's done since she's graduated from college and, and that type of stuff too, you know? So um, I think you, you guys deserve a lot of credit for, not being in that situation because you had done things the right way for 14 years before she started playing for you, you know? Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I think it's like a lot of parents, you do the, you know, you do the best you can. And, um, oftentimes when your kids turn out great, you probably get more credit than you deserve. And when they turn out bad, more blame than a parent deserves. It's, I just think it's God's grace that your kids do whatever they do, you know? And it's, it's I um, she was just a delight to coach and she's taken that those same characteristics from the basketball court right into the mission field in Africa for six months and now into that mission field in a school she's in and so yeah I, I think that's um, she made it about as easy as it could be on a, yeah. a dad coach and a, a daughter and I really think honestly if you think about it I, I really think Shelley deserves most of that credit <laughs> Probably about ninety-eight percent of it, <laughs> I would say. I'm just going to hang on to a couple percent of it. Yeah, yeah. You, I'll, I'll allow you to do that. So, <laughs> um, so then you, uh, you go through this run. You go through this incredible run, and you, and you guys are under a lot of scrutiny. And, we, and we, you know, you know, we had the, you know, the couple of really, really competitive games at the state tournament, and both, you know. Uh, especially the the year where you guys were number one and we were number two all year, you know, we were both teams were under a lot of scrutiny and that type of stuff for for different. Re- you know, people look to our team as that was the team that if anybody could knock them off, that was the team that could do it. I guess, you know, and you guys were, you know, you were better than us, you know, and I knew we would have to play extremely well and you guys would have to be average. For us and that's not a knock against my kids that's a compliment to your kids and and the way they played um but you go through this run and then you decide to step away for a year you know what did you do in that year off and and how do you think you use that year to kind of set yourself up for kind of the second half of your coaching career i tell you it's interesting got into reffing and that gave me a completely different perspective but not like you would think in terms of, well, how you think about a ref and all that, although that was part of it. You start to really empathize with the refs go through. But as I'm, as I'm refing, I'm starting to really empathize with coaches because mm-hmm. now you're kind of, you're stepping on the outside looking in, in terms of what coaches are going through and, you know, tough losses and so forth. And I, um, the thing that really stands out to me about that is it made me a lot more empathetic to coaches and what they go through. And, um, in terms of being being a really good mentor coach, you know, it really made me want to be a coach that could help other coaches. But I remember okay. after a couple of games I refed, um, sitting and talking with the losing coach mm-hmm. after a real tough loss and 
And I remember one time I was refing Fremont Bergen girls in a game, and they were not very good. And there was a young coach. I talked to him afterwards for a, for a while, and then I think they won state this last year. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah, and it was that same coach that was there. And I remember thinking back the conversation I had with him about, hey, I've been where you're at. I was at Rising City where we were two and thirty. And if you keep doing, we talked about the things to just keep doing and focusing on. I said you'll be surprised at the success that'll come your way, and may, you know when you leave, when you maybe didn't least expect it. And then when he won that state championship, um, I remember that conversation we had. So it made me really think in terms of wanting to help other coaches. I really kind of take it on a passion of wanting to talk to other coaches and be, um, you know, so this kind of feeds right into that and just share. I was just going to say, I think there's a pretty good podcast for exactly what we're trying to accomplish there. But you know, it really made me, it really made me think of that. And it also made me think as I looked from the outside in, I realized that the game and watching the kids, it's like, it's really more about the kids. It's about what will these kids think about you for having had them as a coach 10, 20 years from now mm-hmm. and the impact that you can make because this game, as I'm reffing all these games during the year, they come and they go, the wins and losses, they come and they go, but those relationships, they, that's what lasts. And so relationship with other coaches, relationships with your players, that really really impressed me that year out and mm-hmm. then the door opened to get back into it and i just didn't anticipate that happening i thought when i got out at seward for one year whoever took it over would be there a long time and so i if i was going to coach it, it'd have to be somewhere else mm-hmm. and for it to open up like that and again there was a lot of prayer about that and it just opened and it was one of those things where the door opened and i just felt like that was the right thing to do was to was to, to take the job back and the first year back was real rocky it was the most difficult year of my entire coaching career and things that went through was that that's that's interesting why is that because you're you're just two years removed from being there for over a decade you know why was that so difficult well part of it was having coached my daughter for four years i was really hard on her Mm-hmm. You know, in, in a way that makes sure, you know, the other thing, make sure that you're harsh on your kid and we are winning. And I, and I got back, um, the team was not very good. It had the year I left, um, it was going to be a big drop off. I mean, it was Quinn. I mean, my daughter left a lot and I got out of it and we knew it was going to be a rebuilding. We knew, I mean, I knew it would be. And so when I came back year two of that rebuild, <clears throat> coaching the same way I did, when we were winning state championships and I, and I just realized that you, and that didn't work. And it just, it was a headache with some parents. I've never really dealt with that kind of stuff overall and made just some major, major headaches with parents and, and this to where I'm just like, what in the world have I got myself back into? It's just, well, I think once again, it was just God's like, there's some things I'm going to teach you in this. Mm-hmm. But you need to learn in this. And you talk about the kids learning life lessons for the rest of their life. Coaches are the same way. We learn life lessons mm-hmm. in coaching that helps us in our marriage and in our families and that stuff. Um, and so it was a incredible learning experience for me. Very difficult, but I learned some valuable lessons. There's, I look back and say, even as it was by far the worst year of my coaching career in terms of what I had to deal with. By far, nothing even close. Yeah. I would go through it again for the fruit that it bared in various areas after that. But, and just things like, just things like, okay, how everything you say to your players matters. Mm -hmm. It does. 
You're either building them up or tearing them down. And I had to learn some lessons about, you know, when you're winning a lot, you can get away with more of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I wouldn't want to be that way. I mean, I want to be known as a coach that really cares about the players, that players would say um, um, that you're heavy on praise, light on criticism. And so going through that, got to see the other side of that and have had more enjoyment the last three or f- three to four years mm-hmm. of my players and relationships that I have never had. I should say never had, but I mean, it's been the best it's ever been. And the success has still come. I mean, we have one state championships, but we've been in the last two years, we were ranked in the top. Well, I think we were ranked number one each of the last two years yeah. um, going to the state tournament. And I've always said, you've got to get a little luck. I said, you've got to be in the hunt, but then you're going to have to get some luck, whether it's a, a good call that goes your way, an injury that does or doesn't go your way. But getting back into it, it was like, I learned more lessons in that first year back in coaching than I think I probably did the entire time before that. Do you think it was, uh, some of it was, um, Coach Tiverti was here, we had all the success, uh, Coach Tiverti leaves, we struggle for a year, you know, and there was no doubt, you know, the, the guy that took over for you, and, and we both watched him coach, the, the and I forgive me for not remembering his name but he did he did a, as good a job as he could with the with the players that he had and then do you think some of it was well coach Tiverti's back so now we're going to come back and we're going to win 20 games again and well you know no we're just not as talented as these other teams and of course it's got to be the coach's fault you know was was do you think that might have played into some of it just the the you know the unrealistic expectations of it to a degree you know, ironically, I I don't I don't think it was that the guy that took over his name was Mark Roggy, mm-hmm. and he had to leave after one year because his wife was a got accepted to um, optometry, uh, optometry school. school. Yeah, that's right. Yep, and ended up graduating. I think they live in Kansas City now. He did a great job, and I I watched. So oh yeah, I agree. I agree. He did he did a really good job, really good job. And so when I came back, the pressure was more. Not pressure. The, the, it was more about hey, a reflection of how are you going to, how are you going to coach the kids? How, how are you going to, you know, are you are you going to make their performance on the court be more important in how they're performing on the court than building them up as young ladies? And you know, and I just really started to introspect and look. You start to watch other coaches and so forth and say, what kind of coach do you want to be? Yeah. I mean, do you want to be the kind of coach that kids, when they walk down the hallway and they see you at the opposite end and they see you coming, are excited that they get to walk by you and talk to you in school, remove about, or they want, like, they want to cut through the library and avoid a conversation with you? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of coach do you want to be? And it, and it really made me reflect about, because you're not always going to win. You're not always going to have a lot. You're not always sure. going to oh, yeah. have, have the winning that can cover that stuff up, which a lot of times, if you're winning, it can. Mm-hmm. Um, but how are you, how do you want your kids to describe you to others when you're not around? Yeah. And that really, that was a lesson that I think, you know, and I, you know, I talk about praying for years on my prayer card about wanting to give me a heart that wants to honor God more than wants to win and let him take care of the results. I think God gave me many opportunities along the way to really embrace that. But it's like, you know what? You've been praying about this for a long time and I'm going to have to take you through some strong discipline 
to get you to that point, but it'll be worth it. Yeah. And it's like, that's exactly what happened. I mean, I'm convinced it's like, here's a strong discipline to get you to where you've been praying for. Um, and this is like you do with your own kids. Discipline yeah. sucks when it happens. Yeah. But you're doing it to hope that they then grow and develop yep. because of it. Yep. And that's kind of what happened to me. I kind of feel like I'm a different coach now getting back, especially with that year that I mm-hmm. went through. I think you're complete. I mean, in a good way, but I think you're completely different. I mean, how you handle your kids, how you, how you, and, and you, it wasn't not, it was never bad before or anything like that, but I just, I just see you, um, coaching, uh, with the, with, you know, it's hard to describe. You are, you are coaching, um, I want to win. I'm going to do everything that I can to win. Uh, but if we lose and I, and I feel like if we've put forth our best effort, I truly am at peace with it. And, and that's kind of the, the difference I've seen with you the last few years, just personally, you know, as long as I've known you. And I think and, it comes down to, yeah. I really think it comes down to truly caring about your players. Yeah. If you really, truly more than winning, winning is like winning clearly has to be take a back seat to caring about your players, to really, truly caring about your players and how you go about it every day and through all the season. But the thing, the crazy thing is, by making that the top priority, you're going to end up winning more. Yeah. You know, doing mm-hmm. those things that way, and you focus on winning, and, and you forget about your players in terms of how you, you know, going that extra mile to, you just think about the successful coaches today, the ones that, you know, you see like the Dabo Sweeney and, you know, coaches like that, that care element is there because when those kids know, hey, he really cares about me, mm-hmm. they will play in such a different way than a coach who you don't think cares a great deal about you. Just think about as a teacher in a school. If you've got administrators that you really believe truly care about you, really do as a person, first and foremost, um, you want to work your tail off for them. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely, most people yeah. can probably, you know, most people can probably think of some boss or somebody they've had that doesn't treat them very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, I really don't want to put in that extra mile. So, um, you know, the best way to put it is treat players the way you'd want a coach to treat your kid. And I had a really, a good friend once in the coaching ranks when Hannah was assigned to play college basketball. At. He said, you know what? interview or not interview but talk to the players of the programs you're looking at who are getting the least amount of minutes of anybody on the team call them and say and ask and see what they think about the coach that's exactly what we did we ended up she ended up at colorado state but one of the players we called was one that we knew that was fewest minutes on the team and just spoke so highly of the coach i'm like that's that's to me what it's all about. The mm-hmm. ones that can't do or aren't doing anything on the court for you, do you still value them and do they know you value them? Mm-hmm. To me, that's really been one of my um, passions. It's kind of carried over mm-hmm. to the classroom with the, with students that maybe are a little disadvantaged or whatever. It's amazing the cultural statement it makes, and every player notices it. When you seek out and value the players that can do the least for you on the court to help you win mm-hmm. on the court, so, speaks volumes and does volumes for your program. So what are some things that you do to try to create that environment? 
Well, one thing is you try and make sure that you a are you know I I always feel like those cultural things you can you can have the the whole group cultural things you say to them you know those sayings and those slogans and the whole group stuff, but it comes down to those individual conversations you have with kids. Just like in teaching, as they're coming into the room or they're leaving, or as you're walking around in the course of a class where you get a chance to talk to them, where you seek them out for opportunities to praise them. Find, I call it catch them doing things right. Catch them doing things right. So for a player on your team, maybe it's one that has, you know, can't contribute on the varsity court, but you find something they do well in practice that's not fake that they do, and you make sure you single it out to everybody. Because that tells everybody, I'm noticing you. I care enough about you to watch you and to affirm you in front of your teammates. Maybe it's in, you know, we do, we have awards after every game for, you know, that we give out for our JV and our varsity kids. We talk about the game and have awards we give out. And and there's a great opportunity to recognize things that aren't all scored to most points or whatever, but recognize in our JV games we recognize that as well where you seek kids out to get praise in front of the team for things that aren't related to scoring the most points or that type of thing where they say boy the kid that gets their name in the paper yeah right and it's it's amazing how when you lift up the players on the team that get the least um uh the least amount of press or lift up the ones that they would least expect to be when other kids see that you care about the least of them, and by that I mean the ones that are contributing the least to your encore play, um, it just sends volumes about, hey, this pro- this program is about caring about people, not just caring about who can contribute the most. Um, just in, and, I, and I thought that too, having kids go through helps. Having kids go through because if you have your kids go through sports, there's going to be a time when they are things aren't going well for them. Yep. And boy, as a parent, what's opened my eyes is, but what a lifeline for a coach to even one thing they might say to them one day in practice and they come home and they tell you and you just realize how affirming that is as a parent. And then you know how affirming it is for the kids. Like, that's what I want to be for my players mm-hmm. is the one that maybe doesn't think they have any value on the team. But boy, he sure sees value in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really good stuff. I think that's really, really good stuff, and uh, I, I think you've you've definitely shown that. You know, last season, you know, you gave me uh, the opportunity to kind of help from afar with you guys, and you know, I got to see some of that in action. I think that's great for other coaches to hear as well you know from somebody that's been around and you've kind of you've evolved don't you feel like it's it's safe to say you know now looking back on it from your from your Kozad and Gothenburg days to and even like you you know kind of admitted you uh your early days at Seward to your 2019 Seward Blue Jays you know you you feel really comfortable with the evolution that you have have gone through as a coach and that you're continually evolving and if, and, and, and you've been open to evolving the entire time, don't you think? Absolutely. And I, I'm convinced, no, without beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm just convinced that that's, that is a result of years of praying about it. And I look back and I, years of praying that I would have a heart for the kids and honoring him more than winning and that he'll take care of the results. But that took a while. I mean, that, that 
I look back and I think that was a lot of years of praying, praying about that. And now starting to see the fruits of that. So you talk about persistent prayer, you know, and so forth for things, seeing the fruits of that now to where I just, I just know my heart really is constantly looking for ways. How can I build up players? Sure. I want to win. Sure. I'm far from being perfect. People watch me. I think, Oh, that's not true about him. But I mean, you just know your heart. It's now you just you're just looking for ways. I'm looking for ways to build up my players. Mm-hmm. I'm already, you know, it's kind of this year we're going to have a, a whole new, you know, we lose four starters. We're going to be so young. We had two other kids that had to move away that would have been um, some of the kids replace that. We're going to be really in a, a an exciting challenge in terms of okay, now. If you aren't getting as many wins as you got the last few years, how can you still make these kids grow and develop and feel great about themselves and better off having played for you? Then, and so that, that's what drives me now, and that's that's a total change from, you know, years earlier. It's like the driving force of how we win games. Well, yeah. Of course, we want to win games, but so that that flipped. It's like that didn't just happen by you just trying real hard to make it happen. That that's the transformation that I just I, I just know. It's and it's 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 years of prayer and seeing that fruits of that now and enjoying coaching now more than probably ever before. And so that's you know, you get back to your original question, how do you handle all that stuff? It's for me it's been prayer. I don't know how else you do it other than you just fight the good fight. <laughs> um, the power of prayer I just think is 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 very powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, we've we've given away about half of the second half of the podcast with with uh, our our last fifteen minutes or so. Uh, but you know, it, it was a, definitely a natural transition into everything. Uh, we are going to transition here uh, into the Don Meyer quote of the day, and uh, you know, Coach, as a as a veteran that's been around for almost thirty years, I think this is something you've probably gone through. Um, the Don Meyer quote of the day is. Go out and get all the good ideas you can, but realize that you can't use all of the good ideas. So the Don Meyer quote of the day, go out and get all the good ideas you can, but realize that you can't use all of the good ideas. I'm sure you've been there, haven't you, Tom, where you've got all these ideas, but you can't use all the good ideas? Yeah, and you get all these good ideas, and you kind of tuck them away in a Rolodex, and like he said, you can't use them all, but there will be ones that will come up from time to you'll be able to say you know what that idea that i got from here a year or two ago it's gonna it fits perfect with this year's team mm-hmm. i was reading an article about bill callahan who just took over again for the washington redskins head coach has he set a week. record for like being an interim coach most times in the history of the <laughs> nfl i think he has to have <laughs> and they're talking about he's taking notes he's got notes from every aspect of coaching for like just just rooms and volumes of that and I'm like thinking that's kind of you know take take information from everybody there isn't anybody I mean I've gone to junior high I've gone to junior high games or middle school third fourth grade games I pick stuff up you yeah. know or practice or whatever um, but you can't use everything you can't but you sure can keep it in that Rolodex like um, for a given time in a given place that it does fit. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can sometimes think have all these ideas going into a year and say, I want to put all these into effect. It's like, no, you, you've got a, it's this year and this year is unique. Mm-hmm. And what applies this year? Yep. Um, so 
you know, we were going to talk a lot about culture in the second half, but we've already kind of talked about that in the first half. So the first half is a little bit longer than what our normal first halves are. Uh, but hey, you know, like I said, it was just uh, great stuff. Um, so let's talk about practice planning. And you're talking about implementing those good ideas. And, and one thing that I know you're very passionate about is practice planning and you you know you talked about a, a master practice plan and uh, you know looking at the forest and not at the trees so to speak uh, so kind of describe to our listeners how you go about planning your your practices and your your master practice plans well first thing I do is after the season is over probably the next fall usually course of the fall is when I'll go back and I'll watch every game from the previous year and just take notes Mm -hmm. because I think all the clinics of the world you went to and that's good that is but your best clinic is is the games your team has played and who they played against at your level so for me it's our girls basketball schedule here at Seward and who we played against and just take notes it's and just take notes you're not scouting you're just observing it's amazing how many things a person can pick up. I remember just something as simple as how to defend a ball screen. I remember years ago watching the film. We were playing Lincoln High, and um, uh, one of our girls executed our ball screen defense wrong. But I looked and said she did it wrong. It's kind of a lazy, lazy wrong. But oh, that actually works as a technique. You know, picking stuff up in that situation. So I'll take notes, and I'll probably get about ten to twelve pages of notes from watching that. Then the master plan. I'll go through and say, okay. What are the areas, defensively, fundamental areas we have to master by the end of the year? And so, just you, you start on the defensive side with the master plan, right? Start on the defensive side. Now, now actually, I won't start. Defense or offense doesn't really make any difference because I'll just take notes. But then I'll go through and I'll just start. Then I'll categorize those notes and say, okay. And I'll go through and have come up with the for this upcoming season. What are the four to six defensive areas that we fundamentally are going to have to be really good at that's going to be our identity and then start coming up with drills to make sure we are systematically hitting on that fundamental area with a variety of drills you don't get you know boredom from stale every day yep and so that could be something like this like if you're going to have a Pressure man-to-man team, full-court man-to-man. We're going to play a lot of kids. Okay, I remember when I had teams like that, okay, or we'd have uh, one fundamental area, we've got to be really good full-court and half-court on the ball defense. That's one fundamental area. We're going to systematically spend a lot of time on full-court one-on-one. So that might be the area. Defending screens, boxing out. You know, we were in a 2-3 zone the last few years. So that changed those fundamental areas for our identity, which was 2-3 zone. So go through and build those fundamental areas and then a bank of drills in each area for and then type it up in a master plan, a checklist, if you will, to make sure that on a rotating basis you're hitting. And there'll be some areas like we got to hit this every day uh-huh. or we got to hit this three times a week in the preseason. So you kind of from that master plan then decide which fundamental areas you've got to hit. You know, and I have kind of benchmarks. Um, the first benchmark is where we need to be at the end of the first week. And so take that master then. You do the same thing offensively. So what are we going to have to be really good? Maybe you're, 
You know, this the last few years we were all post game, so that dictated our fundamental offensive areas in terms of um, emphasis compared to if we're up shoot threes, our state championship run, it was all spread the floor, shoot threes, and attack the basket. So you get those fundamental areas that you're going to want to have every your passing dribbling, but those fundamental areas, get that bank, that that master plan of those six, to, you know, four to six areas. And so what I'll sit down then is um, after I've got gone through the previous year's film, taken all those notes, look ahead to the next year, know the kind of team you're going to have, and decide what do we have to be really good at, what fundamental areas are essential for us to be really good defensively in that system, and the same thing offensively. And then I'll sit down and say the first day i got six days. That first benchmark is that scrimmage that first Saturday. And so I'll sit down with that master plan and say, okay, so these two fundamental areas, we've – We've got to hit those every day the first week. So I'll just mm-hmm. go through and plot them in every single day, Monday through Saturday. And then do the same thing with every year. This, this area here, we can wait till week two. This area, we got to hit. Let's hit it twice this week. And so you build it for that first week offensively and defensively. You get to that first scrimmage, boom. Then use it. and with Because if you don't use a master plan, you're thinking off the top of your head mm-hmm. in terms of, hmm, what should we do today compared to, yeah. here's my master plan so things don't fall through the cracks. You know you're working on things at the rate you need to, the repetition you need to. So then the next week you sit down and go through all, get the master plan sit down in front of me, and the next one's always a Monday through Wednesday. You know, get you to Thanksgiving break. And then after that, your scrimmage ended, say, through the first week. So I use that master plan I use to make sure nothing's falling through the cracks of like, crap, we haven't been working on this area. It guides me to make sure that we are hitting on the fundamental areas we need to be and how often we need to be, and that we're um, implementing things when they need to be. Um, I'm kind of surprised because I think there's a lot of coaches that don't use a master plan and just kind of, well, let's see, what are we going to do for practice today? As opposed to having a master plan. It's kind of like having a blueprint for a house. Okay, when this house is done, this is what we want it to look like. Well, you got to have those, the, the, Okay, so first we got to do this, you know, then we've got a, you know, there's phases to it. Yeah. And ultimately, the house will be then a finished product. Well, I kind of want the house to be a finished product basketball-wise by the end of the season. Mm-hmm. So that master plan really is the blueprint to get to that finished house without, geez, we forgot to put the electricity in or <laughs> we yeah. forgot to put the plumbing, you know. Um, otherwise, I think way too many things fall through the cracks. And you're just not nearly as efficient you, as you could be if you didn't have that blueprint do you, to lead you along the way. Do you have that mapped out? Do you eventually map that out through the entire season before you even get going? You mean the master plan? Yeah. That's put together before the season ever starts. Yeah. Um, and, and again, that's a... That's but how, a yeah, how long do you carry that out? Do you, is it just through your preseason... Or oh, is it through through the holiday break or all the way to the end of the season? All the way to the end of the year. Yep. So my goal is that when we're heading into districts, when we're heading at the end of the season, everything has now been implemented. And I literally have the master plan, and you just kinda of check it off. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to and of course you're gonna make some tweaks along the way. Sure. But by the time you are heading into postseason that house is finished. Mm-hmm. Everything you wanted to have emphasized and as your identity, you've put the time in, the repetitions in, and you're really good at that 
finished product as good as you can be. You know, in high school, you're going to be, as, you know, you, some years you're not going to have as good of players, but it's all about maxing out what you have. And so that master plan for me is a way I make sure we are staying on target day by day, week by week, everything we do. I mean, every drill, every minute we do in practice has been thought out in terms of how often we're doing it, when we're doing it. And um, so to me, I just think without that, I just, my practices would be so much more inefficient and mm -hmm. how many things would fall through the cracks. And that house at the end of the year is like, man, we're missing a lot of stuff. Here. Yeah. You know, uh, we're missing a lot of the quality parts of it just because we didn't have the blueprint to follow. How many, how many, before your first day of practice, how many full practice plans have you prepared? The first week, I make all six of them, which would be Monday through Friday, and then the scrimmage the first Saturday, and a few. Um, and we have a scrimmage first Saturday, but half of that's also going to be a practice. So I'll do sure. that first block is six days with the scrimmage. The next block is three days to get me to Thanksgiving, and then I'll have a mini block, or excuse me, after Thanksgiving, then the next block will be the Thanksgiving break practice mm -hmm. in the four days leading into the first game. Mm -hmm. And then after that, after you get to the first game, yeah. then every block is just the block in between games. So mm -hmm. you might just have one day or you might have four days or sure. three, whatever it may be. But then it's like, okay, we got two days now before the next game. Now I'll go back to that. And then I just go back. I always go back to my master plan. Always yeah. go back because that makes sure that I'm not forgetting anything. Always go back to that and just like, okay, this area here, okay, <coughs> got to hit this area. You got two practices, got to hit it both days. Yep. This area, we just need to hit it once. Mm -hmm. This area, we don't have to hit it these two days. We can push that off to the next window. And so yeah. um, it's used every little window, and every window is that preseason, as I explained it to the first game, yep. and then those chunks, those chunks within the season between games. When I kind of did the same thing, you know, and just to give our listeners a, a, a kind of a same but different type of idea, I would do the same thing as you. I'd go back, I'd watch every game, take notes from the previous year, all that other stuff. And then around Labor Day, um, I would start planning my practices. And I would plan over the course of three weeks or to a month, let's say till October 1st, I would hopefully by October 1st have all 13 or 14 preseason practices done, you know, and then I would let it sit. Then I, I literally wouldn't touch it for about two weeks. And then I would come back to it and I would go back through everything again. And I would say, okay, how do I feel about practice one? Are we doing in practice one? Does, how does that carry into practice two? Do we have, enough building blocks in practice one that practice two is going to make sense. And then from practice two to practice three and so forth and so on. So that in kind of the same way that you're doing it, that's, that's what I would do to kind of, okay. And, and then I'm sure you kind of do the same thing. You have, you know, that first week planned out Monday through Saturday, but you reserve the right to after Monday's practice, you go, okay, let's tweak this and this on Tuesday because 
it didn't work. You know, we didn't get to as much as we thought we would on Monday or whatever the, the circumstance, or we didn't do it as well as I thought. We're not ready to go on to the next step on Tuesday or that type of thing, you know. So um, that's kind of what I used to do. And it, it sounds like we're kind of on the same page. It's, it's, it's the same. It's, you know, a different way to skin a cat, essentially, is kind of what, what I feel anyway, you know. So, there, but there's a lot of similarities with it. Yeah, for me, the, the whole fall is putting the master plan together, and that comes in pieces. You get a little, um, little tired or whatever. It's like, you know what, I need a break. I make sure I'm fresh when I keep coming back to it so you don't you know, mm-hmm. end up just you know, not doing quality work. Yeah. But that master plan, that's got to get completely done. And once it's done, then you get, for me, I get about a couple weeks before the season starts. Then I sit down and say, okay, now let's map out that first week. Mm-hmm. And... And you, and you never know. You might have a snow day. You might have an injury. You might have you know who knows what might come up to treat sure. that. But that's no different than building a house. You know, you might we wanted to get this done by now. It rained. We can't get the whatever poured. So you make. Yeah. But without that plan in place, as your guide to you can't to, make the adjustments as easy. You, you can't. Yeah. And but I I I don't know. But I guess there's probably probably a good amount of coaches that don't use a master plan. And so to me, if you don't, I think you fall into that trap of, well, you just sit down and say, you got practice tonight. Let's put some drills down. And that's just not efficient to me. No. And I think, I, I mean, agree. every I single, I mean, it's compound interest each day, what you get done in practice, you know, a very efficient practice compared to one that's 75% efficient every day upon next day, that's just compound interest that you're not taking advantage of. If you're not getting the best interest rate, you know, you're not getting the most efficient practices. Your practices, I just, they're so important. I mean, Connie, you already told me a few years ago, she talked about how she, how much she, um, she said recruiting kids from quality programs, that that would always be a big factor because of how much further along a kid will be from that compound interest. Mm-hmm. of good high school practices, quality high school practices compared to bad ones in terms of player development. And so that's a passion of mine is player development and thinking, hey, if you're playing in my program, you're going to get maxed out in terms of skill development. And and for my practice, so much is skill work, so much is skill work. I think people be surprised how little is five on five team stuff, but so much of it is skill development that plays into those fundamental areas. Yeah. Yep. Um, two two more things I want to talk about with you here. All right. Um, scouting, you know, and you you and I spent an inordinate uh, inordinate amount of time together on the phone last year talking about scouting and you were always open to to the ideas that I would throw out there to you and and uh yeah I had a blast and I told you that before I just had a blast working with you guys uh but what are some you know I know through our conversations over the years and especially last season I know what you do with with scouting but kind of describe to our listeners uh your scouting philosophy how you implement it to your program you know how you how you bring it in to your kids and so forth and so on. Well, I think for me, it's watching the team you're going to play, watching them until you feel like you have their DNA down. Watch them until you feel like I now can watch them and kind of see things happening before it happens, tendencies and whatever. And I think detailed notes and all that are important. 
But I think then it comes down to, okay, <clears throat> there's no way the players can get them down like I've got them down. Yep. So I've got to take that and then figure out how can I take the volume of information that I've got from analyzing and scouting them mm-hmm. into a simple, understandable scout for them. Because when you think about high school kids, there's only so much they can they can learn really well. And if you just throw it like that, you said about Don Meyer, that quote about take all the stuff in, but you can't use everything. It's kind of the same thing with scouting. You can take a lot of information on scout, but you can't use everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to figure out, okay, what's essential for them to know to help us you know, be successful in the game. So to me, that's the real key is simplifying. You know, just like you want your offense and defense not to be too complicated. Kids can't execute it very well. Well, your scouting report to me too is the same thing. It needs to be simple enough for them to be able to clearly grasp and Mm -hmm. clearly execute. And I think sometimes a guy could put too much stuff in there and then the kids are overwhelmed with it and it really ends up just confusing them compared to Yes, compared to um, yeah. taking what you know as a coach, because there's calls you're going to make during the game that that information is valuable for because you can handle more information. But for the kids, give them something they can look at and say, okay, so I have gotten, my scouting reports have gotten simpler and simpler over the years uh-huh. to stuff that I feel like, okay, they can they can they will really get this uh-huh. compared to gosh I gotta get this other detail out there. Yeah. This other detail, this other detail, this other detail that you know as a coach, but you've got to decide, okay, what's the point of diminishing return in terms of volume of information to put on scout report? Yeah. Well, what's the point of diminishing return? Yeah. Uh, is kinda of like what Tarkanian said, something along the lines of I don't want them thinking, I want them playing. You know? Yeah. And and that's the same thing, you know, is you know we don't, I don't want you, I want you to, to obviously you got to be thinking some, but you don't want them overanalyzing, you know, here's bullet point, bullet point, you know, on, on this kid or that kid or this offense or that offense. And then let's play, you know? Yeah. So it might be something as simple as themes. I kind of talked to, you know, and you were tremendous help last year and I've talked to you about this and about my coaches and just said, Hey, let's look at themes. Okay. This team really wants to drive the ball. So we got to take that away. Mm-hmm. Now, you, of course you might break that down and say, but this kid is just a shooter. Ever. Or this team really likes to shoot the three. So we've got to really do this. Mm-hmm. Or So it's taking these themes that, you know, okay, these themes, if, if we can execute these themes really, really well, they're simpler like that, you know, don't let, you know, we're not going to let shoot three. I think you can execute that kind of a game plan with high school kids a lot better than to um, getting away from themes and getting into the details to where, well, how, you know, how, I mean, how well are they going to remember to make this player in the post turn over their right shoulder? Well, first of all, they have to ask, when they catch the ball in the post, they have to say, okay, um, I got to ask them which one's the right shoulder and say, give me a second to think about this. You know, compared to, um, you know, just giving them a simpler, simpler cues. Maybe it's um, just even how you word things like, hey, make sure whenever you play this kid, you know, like I'll tell kids, squeeze your, every time you're playing me, squeeze your right fist, squeeze it. That's the direction you don't let them come around. You do not let them come around that right fist, you know. So just thinking of ways to put stuff the kids can think in a split second. Yeah. But again, I think Sky Reports, mine have gotten simpler 
less information and more theme-based. Certainly, you're going to have certain players. So in other words, you can't go through every single player and, and have a lot of detail. But you can go through a player or two that are essential. Yeah. Now I think the Bill Belichick rules. Yep. Bill Belichick, he's going to take away your two best options. And then, and then you know what? The rest of them will just deal with it as it comes. But my D, like his defense is they execute knowing this and this we're taking away. Not everything. We're going to take away this and this. We're going to sell out to do that and just live with the rest. Yep. So it becomes a lot simpler. So that's kind of how I've tried to stick with themes and stick with a couple things that we can try to take away or do and just make it simpler and free kids up to say, okay, I know the temptation of the coaches to get every detail there, but yep. I'm going to make this real simple in terms of one or two things to take away from them, one or two things we want to do, and then kind of build a, a simple scouting report around those themes. Yep. Your, uh, you've had a, a really loyal guy in Greg Miller that has been really, really important to your success at Seward. Uh, I know you want to talk about him a little bit, uh, you know, just Greg and his contributions to the programs and just how important assistant coaches are to any coach's program. And, and so, uh, you know, how you manage, your, I won't say manage, manage is a bad word, but how you, uh, you know, the responsibilities you give your assistants, uh, just organizing your program kind of like a CEO, I guess, and, and, and their contributions to your success. Well, I tell you, when, the biggest thing that I've looked for in assistance is loyalty, dedication, passion. By loyalty, loyalty, I mean they are in it with you each step of the way. They are in it with you in terms of you don't make it your life, but I mean they're in it with you. Like I want to be, other than when you know family stuff like that obviously comes up, but um, they're ready to go to work with you because they have a passion for it. So having a that passion and love for the game. I don't even care if you know anything. I mean, I'd rather train somebody that doesn't know anything about it. But boy, I tell you what, I'm all in with you. Mm-hmm. I'm in with you. And Greg Miller is one that has been all in. He's one of those that, and 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 he's a family man for sure. But I, but we've kind of had to, you know, we've really talked a lot over the years about making sure we are not. We're making sure we're not putting our families in the back seat. So, and setting parameters about what we're going to do. But within those parameters, we're going to be all in. Yep. In terms of you know, like we're not going to stay up till two in the morning every morning. And we used to do that a lot years ago. But somebody that's really loyal, dedicated, you can count on that works hard and loves it. That would do it, even if it was a volunteer. If yep. they said, "I'm going to take your pay away," I'll still do it. You know, yep. that to me is always a relentless test. They're going to. Uh, they're not. We're not going to pay you this. Year. The district's not going to pay you this year. I'll still do it. I, ticks me off. I'm not getting paid, but I'll still do it. You know, and Greg, when he started out, we started out together. I mean, he he was like me when I started out, and he knew the game, but the coaching craft. You know, there wasn't an experience of that, and so he's just been such a hard working, dedicated, loyal assistant. Well, now he knows the stuff like a head coach, mm-hmm. and he's still willing to be you know my assistant. He could have had head coaching jobs, mm-hmm. so. Having people that are passionate and enthusiastic about it, because that is a huge cultural thing for your program. Um, 
I'd rather have a coach that doesn't know that much, but loves the kids, loves being there, than somebody that is a genius, but the kids don't like, yeah. you know? And yeah. um, so having that, because that creates the culture, the environment you want. And, you know, like the old saying with teaching, they don't care how much you know. They care, they, you know, what's more important is that you, they know you care about them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's been my right-hand man through all of this, you mm-hmm. know? And, um, and he does so, and like, you know, the great assistants that he is, they do so much behind the scenes and don't get the credit. Yeah. And Greg, Greg does a lot. I mean, it's really getting back in it with, you know, my son's playing on the boy's side, my daughter's playing in college. Wouldn't have been possible to do that without him because of how much we, um, how much he was willing to. We work together with each other to make sure that we didn't have to. One thing we've done is we've made sure that we have not had to curtail family. Mm-hmm. So whether it's him leaving practice early to watch his daughter play in a junior high game or whatever the case may be, we've really made a priority that we're going to make this family friendly without compromising what's getting done on behalf of the kids. So having an assistant that you can count on that can lean on um, is invaluable. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And I, and I love what you said about, uh, I, I think that's the litmus test, you know, we're not going to pay you, do you still want to do it? And if they say, yeah, then you know, you've got somebody that's, that's a winner, you know. Absolutely. Uh, you know. A simple question too. And, you know, you know the kind of coaches that say, I'll do it anyway. Yeah. You know, yeah. compared to, oh, well, if you're not paying me, I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and then, you know, you know, we're not, you know, I don't know if we can pay you. You still want to do it? Yeah. Okay. Well then we'll pay you, I guess, you know, know, set them up a little bit, maybe, you know, so, uh, Tom, this has been terrific. This has been terrific. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you know, I hope you've enjoyed it because I really enjoyed, you know, taking our coaching conversations that we've had over the years and, and now we're just recording it and, and putting it out there for everybody else. So I hope you enjoyed your time on here. I did. I enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate you asking me on. And uh, my motivation for doing it is that there's just one person that can take something, that can help them be a better coach and impact kids in a positive way. So this is well worth it tonight. And it was anyway because I enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your friendship. Appreciate everything you've done for me. Um, you still owe me two state championships. We could have split that two and two during that stretch. It would have been all right, you know. That's uh, one thing that Coach Miller and I always talked about. That was the best team at our first state championship. The year we played you guys and won in overtime, we just about were knocked out before lunch on the first day. And, I mean, I, that was always my fear, too, at state was to play a morning game and get beat, and you're out of the tournament before lunch even hits the first day. Well, I remember thinking thinking that was going to happen to us. because And um, one of the parents, he said, I've never seen you look so white as you did when you were the one seed going down to state, playing an eight seed or whatever the seeds were that – you knew you were playing an awfully good seed because you guys were a low seed because you had played just an incredible low seed that was a high-ranked team because your schedule was just brutal. But I always said that was the best team that we played in that four-year run was that Omaha Scott team. Well, I appreciate it. You know, we we did go through a lot. You know, you're talking about going through adversity and going through stuff. And And most, most normal years, most normal years, average years, a couple of those teams you had would have won state. Yeah. Yep. 
I, but it I, so happens that we had our you know yeah. all class yeah type team. But that's a that's a winner in class B though. At least a couple of those teams you had are winners in class B most years. Yep. Many years. Yep. I, I agree. You know, and, and we, we had our we had a chance and and you know, but I I lose I lose sleep uh, a heck of a lot more on a lot of other games more than those couple of losses that we had uh, to you guys in, in that stretch, you know. Um, you know, the third year we played you at state, you know, we just, with Mamie's, in, and now if Mamie's healthy, you know, that's a different story, I think, you know, but, you know, what she was able to do on one and a half legs was incredible as it was. Uh, but, you know, those first two years that we lost to you, you know, I don't lose any sleep. Our kids played their tails off. Your kids played their tails off. Uh, you know, the year we lost you in the semifinal, you know, we just didn't shoot it well, and you guys shot it well, you know, and, you know, uh, Jim Beheim is still angry with you about busting <laughs> out the 2-3, you know, uh, but, yeah, you know, no regrets, no regrets, zero, none, you know, so, uh, but thanks so much for coming on, Tom. Uh, we want to thank Cossack Chiropractic for sponsoring the podcast. Again, if you're in need of services, uh, don't hesitate to call uh, Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi at 402-964-0300 or look them up on the internet at Kosak Cairo. That's K-O-S-A-K-C-H-I-R-O dot com. Follow us on Twitter, a pen and a napkin. Uh, ha- have you followed us on Twitter yet, Tom? Yes. Okay, very good. Uh, download this, rate it, review it, five stars, get it out there. Uh, again, if there's anything you want us to address on the pod, email us at a pin and a napkin at gmail.com. I want to thank Tom Tiverti for coming on the podcast uh, this evening. And coaches, good luck to you as you start ramping up the season here. Enjoy your your coaching clinic in your pocket. Thanks again for coming on, Coach Tiverti. My pleasure. Have a good-